know, I, what I have to share is, is um, really kind of the same thing I've shared for a long time. I, I was at Winston Churchill's house, and um, it was just amazing. Uh, the, the folks from uh, Kent took us to, um, to Winston's house, and we, you know, you can take a tour. Some of the house was built like four or five hundred years ago, and you know, one of the things I love about the UK, about lots of Europe, is that they um, they built for generations to come. I mean, they have houses there that it's older than our country. Like you're, you're driving along, and it's just like uh, this whole neighborhood was built 400 years ago. Like 400 years ago. Like they put a plaque on our house in our country if it's 100 years old, right? Historic monument. Don't tear it down. It's all made out of wood. It's gonna fall down. I mean, we got, they have castles a thousand years old that, you know, I mean, what's amazing isn't that the, how old it is it, as much as it is that generations worked on it. Like, you know, one generation would start it, you know, like us, it's like if, if your contractor doesn't finish your house in seven or eight months or, you know, finish a, this building in, in a year, you're like, what's taking them so long? And, and they worked, on, they literally built buildings for generations like generation after generation added on to these cathedrals, to these buildings, to these houses. And literally you're walking by something that is like a monument to the fact that people thought legacy. I don't know if you understand what I'm getting at. It's like, it's like when your country is, you know, when, you're, when the country you're, that you're in is, is you know, a thousand years old, 1,500 years old, there's a completely different mentality than when your country's 200 years old and your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was probably here when it started. There's something about thinking legacy. There's something about thinking about living for generations. And there's something about, there's, this, there's a difference. It's very difficult to explain. And, and I think that, you know, the UK in particular, every country in my mind has a piece of the mind of Christ. I don't know that any one country has it all. You know, Americans think, well, you know, we, we know it. We know everything about God. And we go someplace else. It's like they have pieces of the kingdom that we haven't even, we haven't come close to, to embracing. And to me, that's, you know, the exciting part of traveling. It really isn't the, the you know, I'm not a great traveler. I don't, I don't I'm not a, a very good tourist. I, you know, if it, if, is it, if it isn't steak or something close, I don't like to eat it. So, like, you know, I'm getting pretty used to power bars. And, and um, I'm just not a very good traveler at all. But what I, I like is I, I, I enjoy seeing different parts of the kingdom and the, and the mentality of different people. And I like to just be able to... to um, I just like to be able to look at other people and go, they think differently. Why do they think differently? And, and so um, I'm at Winston Churchill's house, and we we're you know walking around his house, and we took a tour, you know, a um, with a, with somebody who you know, that, like they take you on these on these tours through his house, and then he uh, Winston Churchill had a real problem with depression, um, and I mean at one point in his life they actually stationed somebody with him, 24 hours a day because they thought he was going to kill himself. And he called it his black dog. He would not get out of bed at times for 30 days at a time. And um, one of the things that happened in, in the time when he was really depressed is that he started painting. And so there's this whole, you can go down into his studio where he painted. And he died in 1965, I think, or 1966. And so his house, uh, 
was, you know, it's his house, parts of his house is like 500 years old, and then they added on, and, and so he, he stayed in that house until 1964, so not that, really that long ago. And you can go down in his studio and see the things that he painted, and you know, he was an artist, um, you know, in my opinion, not the best artist in the world. But uh, maybe he was, it's just maybe it's uh, the eye of the beholder. But, um, but uh, you know, I sat, uh, they... We were with a, a bunch of folks uh, that were kind of on our team. Danny and Sherry came, and maybe there was 15 of us or so. And I kind of went through the tour faster than everybody else and kind of went through his house. And it was really cool. There was really, some really cool stuff and all the medals that he won. And, you know, he won the Nobel Prize. And there was just all this stuff that he had written. And, you know, and it, was, it was really amazing. And then I, um, I just broke away from the team, and I, and I, was just, and I just sat on a bench, and I was just looking out over his house it's really the grounds are beautiful it's on 72 acres and there's cattle there and it's, it's just really surreal it's really beautiful and i was just sitting there and i was just thinking about um you know all the things that uh winston churchill um you know stood for and what he did and and i just began to just dream about the fact that winston said made this famous statement i quote it this morning he said history will be kind to me for i intend to write it and, and he just, he had all these, he was one of the greatest orators of all times and inspiring people and, uh, to greatness. And, you know, when they would be, they would be dropping bombs over his city, he would, um, he would, you know, go out on the roof of his, of his, um, of his house, or in some cases, if he, if he was in the, um, the, um, palace or whatever you call it there. He would just stand, like in Parliament, he would just stand out on, the, out on the roof and he would just watch them as they'd fly over and bomb the place. And he just felt like he had such destiny that he couldn't be killed until he fulfilled his destiny, much like George Washington. And they would like try to get him to go down, you know, it, because they had these bomb shelters made underneath his house and underneath the, um, the you know, their, their parliamentary buildings and and he just, he just often would refuse to go down into the bomb shelter. He says, like, I'm not hiding from these guys. And he would just stand up on, and, and just, you know, curse them as they bombed his place. And he would, you know, it was just amazing the, the amount of courage that this man had because he had such a sense of, of destiny. He felt like he couldn't, he couldn't fail. He felt like he, he, he felt like he couldn't be killed until he'd f- fulfilled his destiny. And, um, and I was just thinking about, you know, people like George Washington and like uh, Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln. I mean, people who lived in really, really tough times. You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln, 637,000 Americans died in the Civil War. The, the, there were more Americans died in that war than all other wars combined. And Abraham Lincoln, you know, sat in the midst of that. He, he entered the, uh, the Oval Office. He wasn't a believer when he entered the Oval Office. But under all that pressure, he found Christ. And, you know, it led the nation through probably its toughest uh, trial in, in, in its history. And, you know, Wilberforce stood against slavery in his nation. And, and, I, and I was just sitting on this bench, and, and I was just... I don't want to say I was having an encounter with God, because that would kind of depict that, you know, I, I was having a, a kind of an experience in the sense that I was feeling his presence. It wasn't like that. I was just, I, I felt like the Lord just began to take me through history and to show me um, 
or, or, or let me experience what some of these men were experiencing in troubled times and how they stood in the midst of really, really dark and stormy times and they were optimistic and faith-filled and hope-filled and they brought hope to, to seasons when people were hopeless, when people wanted to run and hide, when they thought it was all over. I mean, I mean the, you know, when, and, I, and I just began to think about the difference between the mindset of the world that I live in and the people that I live with. And I'm not talking about Bethel. I'm, I'm talking about it's in general, like the modern mindset, the way people think about the world, the way that people think about sacrifice, the way that people think about the future. And I, and I just found myself just caught up in this, um, in this, if you will, kind of paradox. Like that's the way they thought and this is the way we think. And this is the way people who, who make history think. And I just began to realize what would happen, what would have happened if Winston Churchill would have had a negative eschatology. If he would have saw Adolf Hitler as a sign of the times instead of someone who needed to be stopped. What would have happened if Abraham Lincoln would have thought, you know, these are just, you know, there's... This is just the way it's going to be. Nation will rise up against nation and there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And what would happen if George Washington or, or Wilberforce would have thought, you know, Jesus is going to come back any minute. I mean, thousands and thousands of people gave their lives in different battles and different wars to leave a legacy for people who they would never see. Think about the difference between somebody who's willing to die in battle for something that they believe in so that their children and their children's children can receive, can, can live in safety, can live in freedom, can live in blessing. People who stood against the, the, uh, you know, the tyranny of their, of their days because they had a future and a hope. And, and, and realize that if, if most of these people would have embraced um, the, the eschatology that is common to our day, they wouldn't have given their life for that. They would have, they would have been passive. They would have been fatalistic. They would have been, they would have been like pessimistic. But instead, they, they read the scriptures and, and, and thought of the world very differently than we do. And the world's a different place because people felt that they were supposed to have a future and a hope. You know, and oftentimes we get into these conversations with people, at least I do, um, about, you know, what is your eschatology and how do you see, you know, this scripture and that scripture. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting conversations. I, I, I don't mind those kind of conversations. I, I actually am um, learning more and more about, you know, quote in times. And I kind of enjoy the, you know, the um, just looking into different people's eschatology and theology and. Um, you know, the way they view the end times. But, but the real, my real concern isn't so much uh, line for line scripture as it is an overall mentality. Like, believe what you, you know, not believe whatever you want to believe, but if I can just say it this way, believe whatever you want to believe as long as you believe that we're supposed to have a future and a hope. But when you start developing, listen, I wasn't born to make excuses. I was born to make a difference. I'm not alive to make excuses. I'm not alive to make excuses for when the, the Hitlers of my day rise up or when the, the problems of my, of my day rise up, whether, you know, in, in 1920s it was the, the revolution, the women's revolution, where women in our country rose up and began to get, 
have a voice and they begin to be able to vote. And that, that happened because, I mean, do you understand where I'm going at all? Like, do you understand that in order for people to care, in order for people to make a sacrifice for their country or for the betterment of mankind, they, they can't believe that the world's going to end tomorrow. I mean, you don't send your sons out to war for a world that's going to end tomorrow. There's, there's a difference. You don't, you don't fight a tyrant if you feel like the world's going to end tomorrow and he's a sign of the times and it's all, you know, that's all Matthew 24 or Revelation 13 or something. It's like, it's like you, those people had a totally different perspective about the kingdom coming. And so, um, I, I know that I've talked about this many times, but it, but it really feels like it's, um, a pretty huge thing. Turn to John chapter 2 for just a minute and, It's interesting because um, in verse one, on the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan. Have you ever thought about on a third day from what? (laughs) On the third day of the week, it doesn't say that it says on the third day there was a wedding. And, you know, I don't know. You know, it's just to me, John one begins with in the beginning, there was God. And, you know, and and then it goes to the, um, the second revelation is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, verse 29. In the beginning was God, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and in Him was life, and life was life, and in Him was life, and life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And there's this revelation, the first revelation is that God was, that Jesus was the Word of God, and life came from Him, and actually creation came from Him. And the second revelation is in verse 29. Not only was he the creator of the world, but he's the Lamb of God. He's the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. And then on the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan. And I don't know if this is, if this is accurate, but to me, it's like, this is the third day. You know, you're in the third day. And it, it's the, the third day is the day Jesus came out of the tomb. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan. The first day, he's, he's revealed as the creator. The second day, he's revealed as the savior. And the third day, he's revealed as the one who makes wine for people who are already drunk. But I like this part because it says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, which was an interesting dynamic, in my opinion. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says for you to do, do it. And to me, this is, you know, you know the story so well. And, and, you know, we've told the story here so many times, but. She's to me, the dynamic is so interesting because here's somebody who knows Jesus well. I mean, she carried him in her womb. She was with him for 30 years. And she and and she knows, if you will, she knows Christ probably as well as anyone who's ever walked the planet. And she and he says to her, she says they're out of wine. I mean, this guy's 30 years old. He's not 15. And and she says they're out of wine. And he says, what does that have to do with me? It's my, it's not my time. In fact, he, she actually, he actually says it's not our time. And she says, hey, whatever he says to do, just do it. And in my opinion, he's like, mom, I already said it's not my time. You're not, 
You're not listening to me. Oh, I know you said that, but you didn't mean it. There, there's, there's something about the tenacity of Mary and the way that she knows God that is, to me is insightful and in some ways stunning. That, she, that he says, listen, it's not our time. It's not, and, it, and, he, and it says this was his first public miracle. I mean, what he's saying, obviously, is that it's not my time to do miracles. I don't know if he's thinking it's next week or if it's next year or, you know, is she. But the point that he's saying is my father has designed a time that my father has set a time for my for me to be publicly revealed. And she says, well, you know, I don't know about that, but they're out of wine. That's what I know about. (laughs) And you need to make wine. You know, and I've said this many times, but it's funny, but it is really true. It's like, how did she know that he made wine? <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? It's like, okay, you know, if, if, you're, if, you were out, if you were at a wedding and they're out of wine, would somebody turn to you and say, they're out of wine and you need to make wine? I mean, would it occur to anyone, uh, would it occur to anybody who invited you to come to you and say, hey, you know, we ran out of wine. It's kind of embarrassing. Can you help us? Like, I heard you do miracles. I mean, what I'm getting at is this. It's probable that he must have been doing it at home. Because it says it was his first public miracle. I mean, it is funny, but where did she get? I mean, she could have got it through revelation, but I, I think she got it through experience. I think Jesus was doing stuff at home that that he didn't reveal yet to the world. But this is really, but what's exciting to me is this. He says, it's not my time. Like, like, like the fathers, he didn't say all this, but the connotation is there is a time for me to do miracles. There is a time for me to be revealed as the miracle worker. You know, right now I'm being revealed as the Lamb of God. There's going to be a time for me to be revealed as the miracle worker. And she goes, well, just whatever he says, do it. And, you know, that, what's disturbing is he does. And, and what I'm getting at is that she pulled from, from, she took something that was for another day, wine, for another day of miracles. She took miracles that Jesus said, listen, I'm not doing miracles right now. This isn't my time to be revealed. And she's like, Well, that's all right. They're out of wine. So just do them anyway. And she pulls what's for another day and she pulls it into her day. She pulls the goodness of God into her moment. And this is a this is a woman who intimately knows Jesus. She intimately knows like she's not worried about the theology or or is it, you know, is it sovereignty? Is it predestination? Is it predetermined from the foundation of the world? What day you're going to do this? Is it, are you really supposed to make wine at all? I mean, she's, she doesn't, she's not going through all that. She's just like, they, listen, there's a need, and, and I've seen you fulfill it at home, and you're just going to do it here. Okay, don't argue with your mother. And it, it just kind of leads me to, to, ha, you know, to have this sense that I'm not sure that things are as... Set in motion, I'm not sure things are as predetermined. Let me put it this way. I'm not sure what things are predetermined 
in the sense that they can't be changed by the will of someone who actually loves God. I'm not sure that that things are so predetermined that you can't influence God. And David did the same thing. You know, David has David builds this temple, this tabernacle, which is, you know, obviously we look at it, it's like all exciting. Oh, oh, David loved God. He built the tabernacle. He's such a good guy. So awesome. The, you know, the only problem is there's a theological problem with David building a, a temple, that, uh, a tabernacle, the tabernacle of David. That I don't, I don't really know if you, if you can grasp this, but when David built the tabernacle, he had the five books of Moses. Okay, that's all he had. He had the five, they had the five first books of the Bible. Are you with me? Okay, so he doesn't, he doesn't have kings. You know, that's not all written yet. He obviously doesn't have the New Testament. But he has the first five books of the Bible. That's, that's what he, he studies. Like you would study, especially the New Testament. Well, he studied the Bible. And, 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 the, and so his, new, his Bible tells him about the tabernacle of Moses. And when, God has, when Moses has this experience with God on the mountain, he, remember he's up there for 40 days, and God gives him the instructions for the tabernacle of Moses. He tells him you know, how it should be made, what it should be made out of, you know, who, should, who should build it, and gives him this instruction and how worship should happen in the tabernacle of Moses and he tells them, listen, I want you to build this ark, this, this box, basically. I want you to put these three things in it. And, 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 and I, and it's going to be the ark of the covenant. And I'm going to covenant to be in, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in the box, so to speak. Like, wherever this box is, that's where my presence is going to be. Okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to put it, I want you to have three rooms. Okay, there's going to be the outer court and, you know, the people can come there, the outer court. Then there's going to be the holy place and the priest can come in to the holy place and come in every day, the holy place and, and give them all these things that they had to do. And then there's going to be this place where you're going to put the ark and it's going to be called the holy of holies. So this tabernacle David has, I mean, Moses has three rooms. And the tabernacle, and in the Holy of Holies, which was all lined with gold and had all this ornate stuff in it, God says, you're going to put the tabernacle, I'm sorry, you're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in there. And what you're going to do is, I'm only going to let the most holy priest come in once a year, and he's going to come in and give me an offering of blood, and I want him to wear this particular clothes, and it's a, it was a linen ephod, so that if he sweats at all, and if he sweats, if he comes in and if, if he even sweats a little bit, I'm going to kill him. And, and the whole thing was that, you know, it was, it was all, if you will, a sign of the fact that we come to God through, not through our works, but through his. So there's all these incredible, you know, things that we can learn through this, um, the significance of each piece of furniture and all the things about the tabernacle of Moses. And they literally took a, a, a rope and they tied it around the high priest so that when he came in that one time a year, when he came in, if he did anything wrong and God killed him, they could pull him out of there because nobody could go in to get him if he died in there. So he literally would tie a rope around him and he had bells around, <laughs> he had pomegranates and bells around his, around his, um, you know, his garment. And so, you know, if the bells stopped dinging, <laughs> they knew things weren't going very well. Or if they probably, if they heard like clang, <laughs> oh, that didn't go well. You know, well, that deodorant didn't work, you know, pull him out. And so, so 
the only Bible that David had gave very um, detailed notes about what could and could not happen with the Ark of the Covenant and the Levitical priesthood and who could come in and all of that. And 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 all of that was going on. So this so this so David, so Moses has this tabernacle of Moses, people worshiping there for, you know, years and years and years and years, hundreds of years. And then David gets this idea to build this this tent. It's a tent made out of porpoise skin. And he takes this makes this tent and, and First problem is, is that the tent only has one room. There's two, there's two huge problems, really. The first one, the biggest problem is the tabernacle of Moses is still going on at the other end of, uh, of, of Israel. So the tabernacle of Moses is, is there and the, the Ark of the Covenant's in it. And, and so David's like, well, okay, well, we need to do this differently because we actually need the presence of God in, in the city of David. We need, in, we need it in Zion. So he, he has people construct this porpoise skin tent, which only has one compartment. It doesn't have three rooms. It only has one room. And he takes the tabernacle of, I'm sorry, the Ark of the Covenant, and he, and he takes it into the, the tabernacle of David, and he puts it in the middle of, of the room. And, of course, a guy dies. You know, him, he's trying to get it in there, and one guy dies. God strikes him down and kills him. And, and I mean, there's all these signs like, hey, I don't want you to do this. But David manages to get it in there anyway. And, and then he tells the Levitical priest, like, okay, I want you to go in and minister before the ark. Like 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I want you to sing to God for 33 years. And you can imagine that that, was, that, had, to be, that had to be, like, terrifying. You know, you can imagine, you know, that, that you know, Joel says to, you know, to one of his guys, you know, to Levi, you know, well, you can go first. You know, you go in first, you know, you take the first ship. He's like, hey, no way, buddy. You know, you, I can imagine that they are not really excited about going in and ministering before the ark because they got the Bible. And the only Bible they have says, don't do this. Are you with me? The only Bible they have says, if you do this, I will kill you. If you let anybody else come in here besides the high priest and, and minister before the ark, I'm going to kill you. And David's like, well, I know he said that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. And I'm sure the priest, I mean, you know, this isn't thought out. This isn't well thought out message, obviously. But I mean, <laughs> David's from the tribe of Judah. Do you understand? He's from the tribe of Judah. The only people who could minister before the ark were from the tribe of Levi. David is, goes in and he's ministering before the ark. He's not, his tribe isn't even supposed to be in there. Much less ministering before the ark. That's only one guy one time a year. And I mean, do you understand how confusing this is? Like, you're like, oh, it's awesome. But you, you, you have more of the Bible. The part of the Bible he says, says, don't come in here, you're going to die. Stupid. And, and there's no conversations that are recorded. But if I'm like in charge of the Levitical priests, I'm like, hey, David, king, sir, um, your honor. Like, I've been reading the Bible here. And, you know, I know you love God and you got some good ideas and the music's all great and, and all that. But I'm, I've gotten a little nervous about, 
you know, this putting it in the middle there and uh, having everybody in there. I, you know, I don't want to offend you, but like you're not even supposed to be in here. Like you're an outer court guy and, you, you know, you're not even supposed to be in the holy place. And you're like going to come into the holy of holies. And I'm not, you know, and then you want to like sing like I don't know, singing. It ain't even in here. It's not singing wasn't one of the things that we were told to do when Moses you know, Moses didn't hear no singing when he went to the mountain. You know, he heard, I'm going to die, bring blood. <laughs> you know, don't screw this up. Here's, you know, you know, here's some rules on a rock, you know. Here they are, you know. Oh, you broke the rock. Okay, well, here's the same rules again on a rock, you know. It's like, <laughs> it's like no, no flex. There's no flexibility here at all. You know, it's not written on, you know, something you can add to or just like, here it is, you know. And David decides that he, he, you know, that that, that's all good, you know. But I have this other idea. I think that God just wants us to love on him all the time. I'm sure the priests were like, they had to just have anxiety attacks, you know, (laughs) while they're building this thing and thinking, now, what did he say we're going to do? He's like, I don't know, he said something about we're going to go in there and sing before God. It's like, oh. Man, this king's lost his mind. And then, so so he gets in there and they start, you know, first of all, they have a little crash. And one of the guys who's helping with the ark, you know, he reaches out and touches the ark and God kills him. This is on the way to the tabernacle. God kills the guy because he tried to study the ark. I mean, you know, he's not even in a good mood. It's just... I mean, that would have been it for me. And how, how about your eschatology, you know, your theology? Like, he would be like, listen, listen, it, it, God said not to do it, and he just killed someone who's trying to help you. Okay? You made a mistake. Skid it back over to the tabernacle of Moses, you know? Figure out some way to get you over there. Or at least put some compartments in there. I mean, God's mad about what you're doing here. And so they get it over there and, you know, you know, the whole story and all that going on so long about this. But what's amazing to me is in Acts chapter 15, which is the New Testament. For some of you that aren't well versed in the Bible. James, the half brother of Jesus quotes Amos chapter 9, and he says this, In the last days, I'm going to raise up, and, you th- and if you're a Jew, you're thinking he's going to say, the tabernacle of Moses. But instead he says, in the last days, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David. I'm going to wall up its ruins, I'm going to raise up its breaches, and, I, and, and so that the rest of mankind might seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. You're like, oh, that's an awesome verse. No, you're not understanding this. When that guy built that tabernacle of David, he wasn't supposed to do that. And God goes, listen, the tabernacle of Moses, that was 100% God's idea. Like Moses went on the mountain 40 40 days, remember this? Had his vision, don't forget anything, write it all down, get the details correct, don't make me kill you. (laughs) Right? Okay, so, so that was God's idea. Tabernacle of David, there's no scripture like, And the Lord said to David, Thus shall you do, because you have a heart after me. Get some porpoises and make skins. 
And, you know, and, you know, go, put, I mean, that was, there's none of the thus saith anything. This is, this is all, this is not from a prophetic word from his prophets. This is just David getting an idea. Something that was in, it wasn't in his, it wasn't, it was in his heart to do this. And God goes, I mean, you know, this is like thousands of years later. God goes, in the last days, I'm going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. Well, that's kind of strange because it wasn't your idea in the first place. And the guy who did it was totally unbiblical. <laughs> are you with me? You're like, are you, what's your point, Bellaton? Are you trying to say like, listen, don't worry about what the Bible says. Just do whatever you want. It's, it'll be all right. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. You have to ask yourself how he didn't just get away with that because, you know, the kings got away with sleeping with concubines, right? That was not in the Bible. That was extra biblical. Very, very extra, right? You you see what I'm getting at? But but concubine, but but the tabernacle of David was anti-biblical. It was the opposite of what he was supposed to do. So what, so what is your point, Bellaton? Here's my point. My point is, is that the Bible says that David looked into the future. And he saw that there would be a time when everyone would worship God. And the Bible says that when he looked into the future, that he, and he saw the heart of God, and he saw that everybody was a priest to God. There was coming a time when everybody would be a priest. There would be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He said, you know, I'm going to take that... I know, I know, I know what this says, but there's going to come a time they're going to write some more stuff. I'm going to take, now the Bible's done now, so don't add to it, okay? Joseph Smith did that, and we ain't happy about that. We never have been. But he took that, what was going to be written later, he looked into the future and he saw it, and he said, I'm going to take that for my day. I know what's in the heart of God. God's not looking for one guy to come in and have a relationship with him. God's looking for everybody to love him and have a relationship with him and enjoy him. And so it says that in the tabernacle of David, they specifically made sounds of joy. (laughs) They didn't make no sounds of joy over at Moses' temple. It was all sing the dirge stuff. Are you with me? It was all about death. It was all about sin. It was all about this is... Listen, you know, you know what you did over there? You, you, you slaughtered lambs who were innocent to remind you, like, this is how, this is, this is how bad your sin is. And be there while, while it happened. You had to be there while it happened. You had to watch. It didn't matter if you had a weak stomach, whatever. You had to be there while it happened. Why? Because it was the way that you, you realized, like, this is how bad your sin is. It's, caught, it's, costing, it's costing these animals their life and all that. I know, if you're vegetarian, you still had to do it. It didn't matter. <laughs> What's exciting to me is that someone looked into the future and they said, I'm going to take that and I'm going I'm to bring it into my time. Like Mary did the same thing. She, 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 he says, it's not my time. And he's, she's like, well, I think it is. And so she takes some, something that's amazing and she pulls it into our time. She pulls it into her time. Are you with me? You kind of see where I'm going probably, right? So I, I, I'm like, you know, what, I, like you have these wars and rumors of wars. And, you know, I, I, like I have pages of notes. If you'd like me to read them slowly, I could. <laughs> Just 
just pages and pages of notes. And, and, you know, and there's, there's, you know, there's wars and rumors of wars. And, and here's the, here's the, here's the struggle. Like a lot of people's eschatology, you're kind of like damned if you do and damned if you don't. You know, you're, you're stuck in the, in this island. Like on one side of your eschatology is there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And on the other side of your eschatology is when they say peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. So, like, you can't celebrate anything because if things are going good, you're like, well, that's a peace and safety. And any second, they're going to all die. And, it, and, it, and if, you're, if you're in wars and rumors of wars, you're like, well, that's a sign of the times. And you get stuck in this little island. And, you know, you can't celebrate something awesome because, well, that's, that's right, before, right before terrible things happen. It's gonna be, they're going to say peace and safety and then... Destruction is going to come on them suddenly. And over here, you got wars and rumors of wars. And that's, that's how wide a lot of people's eschatology is. It doesn't leave. You can't really have. It's tabernacle of Moses all the time. You can't be happy about anything. Because if it looks like things are going good, you're like, yeah, that's what they said. Right before bad stuff's going to happen. Good stuff happens right before bad stuff happens. And, and if bad stuff's happening, you're like, yeah, bad stuff's just supposed to happen. And it's, you, you see what I'm getting at. It's like, I'm serious. This is common. I'm, I'm, I know I'm kind of like dramatizing it, but this is really where a whole bunch, a big part of the church is. It's like, you can't be, you know, if things are bad, you can't, I, I don't know how you get inspired to change them when you're like, this, Jesus said this. Like, you want to ruin Jesus' prophecies? I mean, what do you want to do? Ruin Jesus' prophecies? He said there'll be wars and rumors of wars and there'll be famines and earthquakes. And he's like, you don't want to pray against that stuff, because if you do, you're ruining Jesus' prophecies. And if you're if you're if you're in cities and you're like you're trying to bring peace, it's like, yeah, yeah, you're another sign of the time. It's like right before the Antichrist comes, there's going to be peace and safety and then destruction is going to come on them suddenly. I mean, and if you think about it, if those are the two main if those are the two main cornerstones of, of your, if you're in time thinking, you can't, you don't have a happy day. <laughs> and unless we shorten the days, only elect will be saved. Well, I don't know if you're gone, but I am. And, and we're praying, you know, we, 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 Lord, we just pray you would shorten these days, you know, and we don't realize like. If we're praying for the days to be shortened, then that means that a whole bunch more people are going to go to hell. How many of you understand that every day people get saved? So every day that Jesus delays, more people get into the kingdom. So you're like, Jesus, come quickly is a selfish prayer. <laughs> so, so, you know, what, what, what am I saying? I, I, I'm simply saying this. I see good stuff in the Bible. <laughs> I know. I don't want to. Listen, I know peace and safety and destruction is going to come on you suddenly. I get it. I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm feeling guilty about making you happy. But, but uh, let me just, can I read you just a couple of uh, things? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, so there's going to be wars. You know, if you want to read Matthew 24, we, we can read that because I have that too, right here too. So, so, so let me just say this. Jesus said that there will be wars and rumors of wars and it will be a sign of a time of the end of the age. I'll tell you what I think about that in a minute. 
But let me give you another one. Verse uh, chapter two of Isaiah two. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, son of Amos, who saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in the last days. Everybody say in the last days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all. Everybody say all. The nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. And we will walk in his path, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Listen to this. He will judge between nations. He will render decisions between many people. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And get this. And never again will they learn war. When's that going to happen? And it will come about in the last days. You're like, no, no, that's the last. That's in the millennium. It doesn't say that. So. So like, OK, so what's my point? I see good stuff here. You go, well, that's not for today. Well, Mary grabbed good stuff that was for another day and she pulled it in her day. And David grabbed good stuff for his for another day and he pulled it in his day. So I might be wrong about the timing, but I'm going to get it anyway because I see it in the Bible. And I know that people that love God took things that God promised and said, I, I'm, listen, I'm believing you for this in my day right here. I'm going to believe you that, that this could happen in my day. And I. Um, OK, I'm going to read you a little bit of my book, just about 15 pages. <laughs> I'm going to read you a page or two. This is kind of, I guess we're getting close to landing here. Um, in the last chapter of uh, my Heavy Rain book, um, the chapter is called It's a Wonderful World. <clears throat> I have a little quote here. Sometimes when things are too good to be true, they're still true. How I many you know God wants to do more than you ask or think? So if you can ask it or think it, he wants to do more than that. It's hard to exaggerate how much God wants to do for you because as soon as you think it or ask it, he wants to do more. Well, that's in the millennium. Well, you can do you can wait till the millennium if you want. I'm not waiting that long. I'm just telling you right now. <clears throat> Maybe impatience is driving my eschatology, but <clears throat> can I read you this a little bit? I'm going to anyway. Some people already got up and left as soon as they figured out what I was talking about. They're like, I'm out of here. It's all right. We're believing for you, too. <clears throat> in 1968, Louis Armstrong, an African-American basking in the fresh flame, fresh flame of the civil rights movement, stared down the doomsday of his era when he sang the famous song, What a Wonderful World. There, here's a line from the song. I see trees of green, red roses, too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. A couple of years ago, I downloaded the song on my iPod and happened to listen to it the first time on a flight on my way to a conference. The song unearthed a crisis in my soul, one that was so deep that I was unaware it even existed. As the song, as the song played, I found myself in a battle that it's impossible to explain accurately with mere words, but I'll try. My heart wrenched with every line of the lyrics as my mind engaged in a heated conflict within itself. 
my brain became a battlefield and various scriptures emerged as soldiers warring against one another in a kind of noble struggle for truth. I kept pushing the, the replay button on my iPad because I felt like Lewis's words were reinforcements in my war for reality. As the hours passed, I came to understand that a foreboding spirit, foreboding means an impending sense of doom, had somehow lodged itself into my soul and was dictating my worldview. I realized that there was some sort of warp need in me to believe that things were getting worse in the world. There I was, flying halfway around the world on a 12-hour flight, aboard an air-conditioned jet, thousands of miles from home, making a journey that only a century ago would have taken a year on horseback or months on a ship and would have, in, would, would have been incalculably more dangerous. The war in my mind intensified, so I decided to retreat to a movie for a couple of hours of solace. I adjusted the TV screen in front of me and began to check out the selection. As I flipped through the entertainment choices, I was frustrated that they seemed a bit dated. I had already watched most of the ten movies that the airline offered. The other shows were chick flicks, and I wasn't desperate enough to cry through a movie to entertain myself. I grumbled to myself about how badly the financial crisis had affected the transportation industry. Just then, I remembered that I had brought a DVD with me. I opened my laptop and put on, put on my uh, Bose noise-canceling headset and inserted the movie. By now, all the stress was giving me the munchies, so I pushed a button to alert the airline attendant that I needed attention. She came over to my seat and just happened to have my favorite soda in her cart. I asked her for something to eat, and she showed me a menu and informed me that it would cost me $5 for a meal. $5, I whined. What is happening in this world? She explained to me that things were really tough in the airline business, so they had to charge for the stuff that they used to give away. I moaned a little more and pulled out my American Express card and charged the meal. We finally landed, and I called Kathy on my cell phone to let her know that I had arrived safely. We talked for a while, and she informed me that the water district had raised the rates 20% due to severe drought conditions that were hammering the northern, Cal northern California. See, she went on to suggest that we cut back on, the water, on watering our lawn. I want the lawn to stay green, I protested. When we hung up the phone, I thought to myself, global warming's killing my lawn. My host was at the baggage claim to pick me up when I arrived. It was really hot outside, but he had kept the car running so the vehicle was a, a cool 70 degrees when I got in. He asked me if I was able to sleep on my 12-hour international flight. No, I complained. It was a hard flight. I had to ride in the cattle car seats. We stopped at Starbucks to get a $4 cup of coffee on the way to the hotel. As we drove, I pulled out the USA Today and began to read the bad news regarding 6.7 billion people who inhabit the planet filled several pages of the paper. I felt terrible for Tiger Woods' family, his story of his affairs, which were unfolding for days, continued taking up several columns of the paper. Well, I thought, What's, what is this world coming to? And then it goes on like that. As I pondered these things, I, be, I came to recognize that I was born into a world darkened in understanding. Although I was lightened to the truth of salvation by faith, I, was somehow, I, was, <clears throat> I, I had somehow chosen to leave the dark glasses of doubt on when viewing the Lord's parish, the world he loved so much. After all, such sunglasses were in vogue. Everyone was wearing them, and I didn't want the Christian crowd to reject me. I've since, come to find, I've since come to recognize that bad news sells, that the average person today hears more negative reports in one week than someone 50 years ago would have heard in his lifetime. I began to ask, I began to understand that the world was satisfied, that, I'm sorry, I began, I also began to understand that the world has satisfied its appetite for bad news by developing track, tracking systems that report what's wrong in the world instead of what's right. For example, we track the unemployment rate, not the employment rate. 
Think about the mindset that develops from focusing on the fact that 12% of our nation's workforce is unemployed instead of that 88% are employed. So many statistics are designed to gauge what's wrong in humanity instead of what's right. And it goes on like that. What's the point? The point is, is it possible that the world's improving? Is it possible? It's just a couple of thoughts. Do you know, um, let me read you a couple of things here. We're almost done. For much of human history, the average life expectancy of a person used to be 20 to 30 years old. But by, 19, by 2003, the average person worldwide lived to be 67. And the life expectancy is still rising. There's, store, there's, there's still more good news. Um, <clears throat> before, the industrializa- before industrialization, at least one out of five children died before reaching the age of, of, of their first birthday. But by, ni- by 2003, worldwide inf- uh, infant mortality rate had dropped to nearly 75% to 1. To 1 in 17. I'm sorry. Let me read that again. Um, before, the industrial, before industrialization, at least one out of every five children died before reaching their first birthday. By 2003, the worldwide infant mortality rate had dropped by 75% to one in 17 children. How many of you know that more children, in spite, despite abortion and every other way that we are killing children, how many understand that the the population is dramatically growing. That despite everybody's, uh, you know, despite much of the world's hatred for children and abuse of children and abortion and all of stuff that's going on, how many of you understand that, that the population of the world has quadrupled in less than 100 years? That's good news because every child, every person is somebody God loves. Are you with me? The average person today has never been better fed than they are today. Between 1961 and 2002, the world's average daily food supply increased by 24%, 38% in developing countries per person. Chronic undernourishment is in developing countries declined by, from 37% to 17% in their population in the same period. By 1950, uh, oh, since 1950, the great agricultural reproduction and in, in international trade has caused inflation-adjusted prices for food com, uh, commodities to decline by 75%. At the same time, access to safe water and sanitation has increased dramatically. And it goes on and on. And if you want to read a book, there's a book called The Improving State of the World that you should read, and you get done reading that book, and you're wondering what you're complaining about. And people are like, well, isn't crime getting worse? Well, do you understand that when Cain killed Abel, that the crime rate was 25%? <laughs> and that homosexuality didn't start in San Francisco. I mean, there was a city named Sodom that was, was so steeped in immorality that they actually named the city after the sin. And I, all I, I'm, I'm not saying, like, let's pretend like there's nothing going wrong in the world. I'm simply saying that there is a mindset that at least, maybe you're not going through this. Maybe, you, this. maybe this has nothing to do with you. But I have a sense everywhere I go that Christians have dark glasses on and they actually cannot see when something goes well. Like we are actually looking for what's wrong. 
And I want to propose to you that the world is actually looking for what's wrong. They don't print good newspapers. Listen, the USA Today isn't filled with good news because you wouldn't buy it. People are not looking for good news. They're looking for what's wrong in the world. Bad news sells. So there could be 10,000 good news stories, but they're not going to put a good news story in a newspaper very often. Most of the time, it's going to be a bad news story. The only reason they do that is because that's what sells. Listen, if you, if you wrote a good newspaper, if you wrote a paper like USA Today, a national, international paper, and you only put printed good news in it, you would have a corner on the market because there's thousands and thousands of newspapers out there that all they print is bad news. And you would think one company would print just good news and everybody would buy it. But the truth is, the reason why nobody has got that great strategy is because nobody would buy good news. It doesn't sell. You don't buy it. And no one else does either. And what's the point? We are prone to look for what's wrong. So how many of you understand that you see what you're prepared to see? So if you want the world to get worse and worse off, then you look for those statistics. Well, unemployment's going up. Well, employment's going up too. Do you you understand that people live longer and they live healthier lives and there's less poverty? And how many of you understand that, 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 uh, you know, just 50 years ago, just before 1920, in fact, in 1900, only 17% of the, of the world's population of women could vote. Now 47% of the women in the world can vote. Do you understand? That's, that's an increase of 30%. In other words, 30% of the women of the world have gotten more freedom since 1900. And it's increasing every day. You know, the Afghan women will be included now. These statistics were written before that. What I'm getting at is this. Do you think that the world is worse or better off for women? Yes. Do you think the world is worse or better off for black people in America? Better. Do you think the world is worse or better off for people who are poor? I can tell you, if you don't know the answer to that, you can just look up the statistics. The world is getting wealthier and wealthier. And we're the first generation where they're talking about us overeating. Well, America's got a real problem. People are getting fat. It's a sign. I don't know if you're understanding what I'm saying. It's like, this is, this is a problem. Do you, do you know what kind of luxury you live in? Like, you can get in a jet right now, and you can fly halfway across the world. You can fly all the way around the world if you want. Do you realize what that would have taken just 100 years ago? What it would have taken for you to experience the world. You know, I've been, like, last year I was in 17 countries last year, myself. Do you understand that that would have been impossible 100 years ago? My, I couldn't take my... I, and, I did that in one year. And if I wanted to be in more countries in one year, I could have been. Do you understand what it would have taken for you to do that in a lifetime? A hundred years ago, if you would have even lived through the journey. People ate each other trying to come into the new world over here. Do you know that? <laughs> on what they, on Donner's Pass, they ate each other in the snow. I mean, you know, it's just like we don't understand what it costs for our freedom. And people did that because they had a hope and a future. And we get here with all of our luxury. I mean, we're in here tonight and it's the air conditioning is on. You know, I mean, I've been in this building when it's 117 outside and it's 80 in here. And we're like, oh, things are so bad. I'm like, dude. Our, my, your forefathers died on a battlefield to give you freedom because they had a vision for the future. You sit in complete luxury and talk about how bad the world is getting. 
And you believe it. And when someone says the world's improving, you're like, no, no, it's not. You know, things are getting worse. It's like people are people are dying and, and there's poverty. Well, there's been poverty and people making bad choices since God put two trees in the garden. Do you understand that? I mean, Jesus has disciples with him. He's like full time Jesus in the flesh with his disciples. And still every one of them denied him when they got under pressure. I mean, this is what people do. This is what they do under pressure. They lie. It wasn't just Peter who denied Christ. Jesus said, you will all deny me. And and Peter just, I mean, Jesus happens to point out Peter's denial because Peter goes, well, I will never do that. And Jesus is like, yes, you will. Yeah, I said you all will. Well, not me. You got the, it might be 11, but it ain't going to be 12. It's like they, you know, they didn't just like, you know, they didn't just use a cuss word or, you know, look at some pornography. They denied they know Christ and they're with Christ. You're, all I'm trying to say to you is like there, there will always be people change the laws. Well, homosexuality is in our school system. Man, that's bad. It is bad. I'm not making light of it. We have problems that the kingdom needs to solve. I'm not sticking my head in the sand. I started an organization called Moral Revolution. I'm not pretending there's nothing wrong. But I'm also not accepting the fact it's going to stay that way. I'm not going to be the person who goes, well, Hitler's just going to take over. You know, things are just going to get bad. Homosexuals are going to run over our country. I mean, you know, it's just going to happen because it says it in the Bible. Well, it says other stuff in the Bible, too, like make disciples of all nations. Greater works will you do when I go to be with the father. In the last days, the house of the mountain, the house of the Lord be raised above the mountains. You know, Isaiah 60, rise and shine for their light has come. Deep darkness covers the earth. I've made you the salt of the earth. I made you the light of the world. I'm, I don't, I'm not, I didn't, it wasn't called to make excuses. I was called to make a difference. Well, how about all these scriptures? Okay, they're in there. I'm not trying to deny they're in there, but how about the good ones? Which ones do you want in your life? Which ones do you want to believe for? Jesus said in Matthew 18, when he tells the story of the, uh, the widow who goes to the wicked judge and, you know, the judge is like, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give you what she wants. I'm not going to give her what she wants. And she keeps going back and going back and going back. And he finally says, you know what? Not because I'm a good person and not because I like this woman. You know, I don't like you and I know I'm not a nice guy, but you're wearing me out. And, and then Jesus said, and the next, his next statement is, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? In other words, will people contend? I mean, it's like, well, you know, I'm not getting a you know, wicked judge is taking over the world. You know, wicked people are taking over the world. You know, I've gone three times to court and I've lost every time. And, you know, I just give up. You know, it's just a sign of the times. And the, and the Lord's like, look at the widow. The widow wears the wicked judge out. And he's like, where the wicked judge out? Like the devil doesn't have the, the fruit of the spirit, you know, love, joy, peace. <laughs> you, know, you know, he doesn't have perseverance. He doesn't have good character. You can wear him out. You can wear him out. You can wear him out. But you won't do that as long as you don't think you're supposed to. Well, brother, you know, that's I, I just don't believe you're right. Well, fine. You know what? You don't have to have you can be out of wine if you want. But I'm not going to be. 
I'm not going to be. I find enough scriptures in the Bible to believe that the promises of God are for my day. And and you can believe that they're not. And you can you can argue, but you, you can argue with someone else because you're not going to argue with me because I, I am spending my time pulling those promises into my day. And I don't know, like, well, what if you're wrong? Well, if I'm wrong, I'm going to be the happiest guy the beast ever ate. I'm serious. I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid of him. And, you know, when Jesus died on the cross, he disempowered the devil. Do you understand that? Colossians says that he publicly displayed him as disarmed and disempowered. I don't know why you would create a theology that re-empowers somebody who Jesus disempowered on the cross. It doesn't make sense to me. It's like, well, he's going to come back. Where's he going to come back from? I don't know. Jesus died on the cross to disempower the guy. And then he said, I've given you all authority. I'm like, okay, I received that. Okay, now I'm taking it back so things can go bad. I don't know how that works. I just know you're not. uh, No, listen, you're giving me the power. I'm keeping it. And if a beast arises in my day, I'm going to deal with him. I'm not afraid of him. He's afraid of me. He said, Jesus said, in the book of James, if you, if you submit to God, which I'm doing that, and I resist the devil, he will run from you. In all times. In all to, it, it, just, it always works this way. So I, I am not going to, I'm not going to develop any kind of, uh, of scripture that takes away the, the authority and power that I've been given. And I'm not going to develop any kind of end time mentality that says that I'm supposed to let the world go to hell instead of disciple it. I was told to disciple nations. I haven't seen one nation discipled since Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. And he spoke to Abraham and said, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth shall be blessed and you shall be a father to nations. I haven't seen one nation fathered by the kingdom. I haven't seen one nation, I know of a couple nations that are getting close, but I haven't seen one nation discipled by the kingdom. So I was told to do that. That if I encounter a beast in a nation, I'm going to deal with him. Because I'm like, hey, hey, you're not supposed to be here. You're out of time. Go somewhere else, another time zone. (laughs) I'm serious. I'm going to talk him out of it. I'm like, hey, you're you're here too early. Get out of here. How do you know that? Because I'm supposed to have promises in my generation. I, I want them, and I want them for my children, and my children's children, and my children's children. So I don't know where you're going to be, but it isn't going to be for the next couple hundred years because I already got that planned out. I got it all planned out, how this is going to work, you know, because it's in the Bible, and I'm, I'm working on that. So, you know, you, you may not agree with, and I didn't actually take you through my 27 pages of my eschatology scripture by scripture, but I do have some actually. I do have some. I actually have scripture for it. I believe you may not think that, but it is true. And I happen to be right about it. <laughs> so so where I'm going is this is that I, I'm not so concerned about someone's eschatology. I, I wrote a few things on my on my Facebook page um, the other day. I, I you know, I, I just wrote, uh, aren't you glad Winston Churchill didn't think Hitler was, you know, was one of the signs of the times. And, you know, and I got, you know, 52 comments and hundreds of, I like that. (laughs) 
And on some of the people were, oh, Hitler was a sign of the time. I'm like, okay, he was a sign of the time. There was wars and rumors of wars, and in that case he was. But my point is, is that, that Winston Churchill didn't lay down and let Hitler run over him because he was an average Christian that I find in most churches. That's my point. My point is, he didn't like, oh, case the rock, you know, oh well, world's going to hell, whatever. He said, listen, you're not supposed to be doing this on my shift. And you're not doing this to my country. And you're not, you're, listen, you are, you, we're going to make sure that, you, that my children have a future. And so people died for a positive world. They died for a positive world. And people gave their lives to the study of medicine and to the study of science. All those people that did that, you know, I'm not just talking about military people, but scientists and, and you know, um, and, and doctors and medical people and all these and inventors and innovators. I mean, they all had they all had this mindset that their job was to create a better world. Do you understand? All, all I'm trying to say to you is, what do you create when you think the world's supposed to get worse? Like, how, how I don't know how you figure out how to have a ministry that in, that that gives the next generation something better when you have a mentality that says things are supposed to get worse. And I don't know how you work that out in, in the scriptures, because, you know, people have been arguing about the last days for, you know, 2000 years. But I'm just opposed to anything that keeps us from trying to improve the world because our forefathers handed us a world improved. Every generation has improved the generation has given the world and has given the next generation an improved world. I don't want us to be stuck in this in this mindset that says, you know what, I, I you know I, I can't you know Jesus is going to come back any minute. You know I'm going to it's going to he's going to beam me up. I'm getting out of here. It's like well you're a you know you're a pre-trib, you're a post-trib, you're a, you know uh, you're a preterist, you're a partial preterist, you're a predator. You're post-trib, you're pre-millennial, you're post-millennial. You know, that stuff's all, you know, it's all interesting when people talk about it. But all I really care about is attitude. Honestly, the, most of that stuff is for people a lot smarter than me. I was going to write a book on eschatology, and I realized that all I had was about 20 pages, and nobody buys a 20-page book. So, so I wrote 20 pages, and I put it in the last two chapters of my book like this is all i know and people write me they're like well what do you think about you know chapter 13 verse 8 of revelation i'm like yeah that's in the bible (laughs) no i asked you what you think about it i I don't know but what i think about it doesn't make me negative it doesn't it doesn't change my commission to do more miracles in jesus be a light in the world be salt Preserve the world, enlighten the world, disciple nations, do more miracles in Jesus, and let the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God. Those things are, those things are corner posts in my thinking. And so when I wake up in the morning and I see you know, bad news, I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, I know. This, these are the challenges of our day, and these are the challenges in my day that I've been called to meet. I haven't been called to, you know... I haven't been called to, you know, watch them for entertainment or read the newspaper. I'm like, oh, I'm sure glad that people are having problems because I'm having them and misery loves company. Or, oh, boy, he's more screwed up than I am. (laughs) 
Oh, well, we can't wait till tomorrow's newspaper comes so I can feel a lot better about myself. I mean, you know, that's what people do. It's like misery loves company and we love bad news because I'm miserable and it makes me feel like at least I'm joined by a whole bunch of other people. And I'm just like, what would happen if people just got happy? If, you know, if the kingdom of God isn't eat or drink, but righteousness, peace and joy, what would happen if you just had peace and joy? Righteousness, peace and joy just filled you and you just like you're spreading it everywhere you go. And and, you know, every time you see a problem, you've got a bigger God than the problem. And, you know, and he just had this mindset. Well, you know, God, nothing's impossible with God. Um, well, it, well, except for, you know, this country that's no, no, nothing's impossible with God. And so I don't, you know, like the world's in trouble. Do you know that? This is a positive. You can say yes. The world's in trouble. And I'm looking at the answer. Right here. You're the answer. Unless you give up. And then you're not the answer. Winston Churchill wouldn't have been the answer if he gave up. Abraham Lincoln wouldn't have been the answer if he gave up. And listen, these people, they, were, they lived in a lot tougher times. It's amazing to me. It's like when people... You know, the news just exaggerates things so badly. They're like, this, these are the toughest times the world's ever lived in. I'm like, you are not serious. You cannot be serious. When my grandfather tells me about times in depression, I mean, this is like, this is like you, can't, you can't possibly believe that. You can go down to Walmart and get anything you want still for a one-tenth of the price you paid for it 100 years ago. You can eat the, the best food. It's imported from all over the world, and you can get it any time you want. And most of the average American and average person on the planet could afford it. It's like you, you can't let people lie to you. So you have to be vigilant against the evils of our time. It's true. We should rise up and not, you know, and, and, and realize that sacrifice is part of how you keep evil out of out of the world, you know, all that evil needs to all the evil, all evil needs to triumph is for righteous people to do nothing. So I'm not telling you just like, let's just stick our head in the, stand, the sand and turn on the movies and pretend like everything's going OK. I'm just trying to get you to realize, like, you have a future and a hope. Your children have a future and a hope. Wickedness didn't begin last week. It didn't begin in San Francisco. And it didn't begin, you know, it didn't begin like it was it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't better in your parents day. People didn't have better hearts before. You just think they did. They may have had less opportunities, but they didn't have better hearts. So. Arise and shine. Why don't you stand up? Gosh. I'm sure this will be some of this will instill some Facebook responses. <laughs> I really like that I have people on my Facebook that totally don't agree with me. <laughs> write me long like do you know this verse is in the Bible? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> I think I underlined that one with black permanent m- marker. I'm only teasing. 
So I'm just going to pray for us right now. I'm going to pray that the Lord would just give you faith for this generation. If you didn't hear anything else, I, I, I pray that you heard that. That God would give us faith for our generation. And for, our, and for your children and for your grandchildren. I have eight grandchildren. And now I'm already thinking, you know, I'm going to be alive. I plan to be alive when my grandchildren have children. So I'm going to see at least my children's children's children. So I'm already putting away money for them. And I'm already planning to help them. I'm like, I, I, I want to invest in a generation that I'll never see. And I know I'm going to see a couple more generations. So I don't want this to be, I don't want them to look back a hundred years from now and say, this was the generation that gave up. I don't want to be known as the generation that gave up. Well, this is the generation that gave up because this is what they believe. Well, a hundred years later. So, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would give us faith. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth, related to a woman who wouldn't put up with a wicked judge? That reminds me of Rosa Parks. Lord, I just pray right now that you would just raise up Rosa Parks among us. That you would raise up Abraham Lincoln's, Winston Churchill's, uh, George Washington's, Esther's, Daniel's, David's. You get the idea. People who stood against the evil of their day because they had a positive worldview. And they, and they, they felt a responsibility to leave the world better off than they found it. And Lord, I just, I, I pray for that right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray, I pray for people that have a big devil and a little God. And, and, and we have a devil. But Lord, I thank you that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Greater is he that's in us. Say this, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I've been called to be victorious. I've been called to be more than a conqueror. I've been called to spread the glory of the Lord all over the world. And I've been called to do greater works than Jesus. I've been called to be a hope for the nations. I've been called to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to heal the sick to cast out demons to raise the dead and to say the kingdoms come near you I've been called to spread the goodness of God all over the world and I believe that in the last days and these are the last days that the Holy Spirit will be poured out and all flesh. I receive that for myself and the generations to come. In Jesus' name, amen.